It's the Warbler Crazy Podcast, talking all things warblers, birding, photography, gear, and even bagels on the road. Join the fun and foolishness with your co-host, Stephen Michaels, and his sidekick, Enrico Palazzo. Now, from their bunkers in suburban New Jersey, it's time for Warbler Crazy. And here we are, all together again. Another episode of Warbler Crazy. I'm your host, Stephen Michaels, and my sidekick is here, the Enrico Palazzo. How are you, pal? Hey, Stephen. I'm good. How are you? Hey, we have another incredible guest today. We have an amazing guest. (laughs) To be honest, I've been blown away by our guests so far this season. And our guest today is another one that even we're humbled considered that he uh, would even hang out with us. So we're going to have to get our checkbook out for this one. Really? What is he doing on this show? (laughs) I I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't really don't know. So uh, our guest today is a world-class birder, educator, and author, perhaps our most cerebral guest to date with stops at Harvard and later Princeton. He's the source as the go-to guy that the birding experts go to when they have a question. And when he's done with them, he'll have you thinking about 10 other things when he answers your questions. He's an on-demand tour guide, traveling and leading bird tours for Victor Emanuel Nature Tours to locations around the globe. Please say hello to our friend, Rick Wright. Rick, how are you? Hi, I'm just fine. Good to talk to you both tonight. Hey, Rick. We're excited that you've joined us, and in preparing for this episode, we felt your story is so vast and compelling that it just wouldn't make sense to cram a lifetime into a 30-minute podcast. So we wanted to hyper-focus on your most recent writing in Sparrows today, and your most recent book is The Peterson's Reference Guide to Sparrows of North America on Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Publishing, available at your finest bookstores and Amazon, of course. So Rick... I love this book. It's a classically beautiful book. It's perfect in a library or on a coffee table, more so than a typical reference guide even. Was that something you were thinking of when you were putting this book together? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm really happy that you noticed that the book is is visually appealing. Um, I have the extraordinarily talented and generous photographers to thank for that, who um, who participated in putting together what I think is the finest set of sparrow images ever published. And of course, I have Houghton Mifflin and their designers um, to to thank too. They they really put together a, a beautiful, really very very appealing product. But I'm really glad that you noticed that the book is different. Um, you know, it it would have been fairly straightforward and maybe kind of expected just to create a reference guide to the sparrows that rehearses the standard identification material, the standard life history material. But I wanted to do something more. I wanted to do something a little bit different. And um, I'm tremendously grateful to Lisa White at Houghton Mifflin for, for putting up with this experiment. Um, we, we started this book with the premise that while birds have a natural history, they also have a human history. And so what, what I did in the book, and um, I, I think that much of it is, is pretty fun to, to read. Mm-hmm. I certainly enjoyed researching it. I, uh, I dealt not just with the birds as birds, but the birds as objects of human thought. You know, how do we think about sparrows? How did European science discover sparrows? What confusions were there in the early days of, of sparrow watching and sparrow naming? I had a great time putting it together. 
Rick, it's Enrico cutting in. I, you know, as photographers, or at least this is the excuse that we use, the pictures are the first thing that Steve and I notice, right? So, sure. so um, both you and Steve share a common friend in Kevin Bolton, who has, mm -hmm. who has a few shots in your book. Yeah, um, he sure does. Happily, these aren't your typical field guide shots. They, they tend to showcase both the environment uh, and behavior in more than in, in more than most of the shots. What is it that you look for? And, and by the way, I applaud you for using something beyond your typical field guide shots, because I think it's part of what really makes the book appealing. Um, mm. What is it that you look for when you're curating shots on a project like this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think everybody has a different answer to that. Some people are really interested in, in portraits. Other people are really interested in images that show the field mark, whether it is aesthetically a beautiful photo or not, if it shows the, the tail spots or the wing bars properly. That excites people. For me, though, I really enjoy photographs that show the bird doing something. Obviously, a still photograph isn't going to show you the movement of the bird. But if you've got your eye in with these pictures, you can see that the bird is about to do something or has just done something, is interacting with the habitat, interacting with different birds. And <laughs> that, that suggestive quality is what I look for in a, a good bird photo. Okay, you know, um, enjoyment or, or the joy of doing what Steve and I do has been not only something that Steve and I talk about regularly, but it's been a big theme for us on the podcast. We've kind of gotten into this um, yeah. with everyone that we've spoken to. Uh, and I guess it's why we stay involved in it. In fact, in speaking to most of the guests, besides music being a common thread, the recurring theme that seems most evident uh, with in the work that birders do seems to be enjoyment. Uh, I sense yeah. that same sense of joy and enjoyment in your book. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm glad that that comes through because, I mean, you know as well as I do that you don't do this kind of thing if you don't enjoy it. Oh, no, it's too much work. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. The rewards have to come from, from inside. And I just, I, I really love thinking about the way people think about birds. I mean, I think birds are pretty fascinating, but um, I always tell people that, you know, as, as interesting as birds are, bird, birders and birding are a lot more captivating. And if you can talk about all three things in a book or in a lecture or in a conversation you have with somebody in the field, birds and birders and birding, I think that it adds some, some really interesting layers to, to the way that we think about what we're doing when we're out enjoying birds. That's a great answer. Thanks. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and, and, you know, you kind of hit on it um, earlier. Unlike typical field guides, you definitely go into a written deeper dive on the bird. And whether that's anecdotal or into a historical story about the species and paralleled with the humans who share the bird, whether it's, you know, a John Audubon or an Edward Nelson, you know, did you, I guess you did realize you were putting the, as you were putting the book together, you were combining such a visual and thought provoking journey, but how much of that when you were putting it together was like research for you and, and how did you kind of compile these stories as you were doing that? Yeah, it was a, a long process. You know, everybody talks about a, a book taking their entire lifetime to write. And uh, a lot of the material I'd sort of been casually, incidentally collecting over the years. 
But when you sit down to write something that is intended to be as thorough as a reference guide, you really end up doing a lot of additional research, too. And I discovered, you know, just every day I discover 50 things that I hadn't known before. There's so much literature, so much historical literature, so much scientific literature out there that is available nowadays and was not available just 15 years ago. That if you sit down and start following the the strand, follow the red thread through the different books and and essays that have been written over the years, you discover that there's there's a story running through all of it. And as I was writing and as I, I was reading, I thought very much about this thing as a story rather than as a, a set of of classic field guide texts. Yeah, it's it's by far one of my favorite. I mean, I have a lot of field guides and books but it's one of the ones that i will keep coming back to and here's a story that ties into that um so last summer we were both enrico and myself were fortunate to see a henslow sparrow here in new jersey oh yeah and it's probably going to sound weird but it really kind of made me sad you know the bird was was clearly 500 miles off course lost and and it was singing up a storm uh-huh you you commented on that and that when we, when we saw that that you felt yeah. bad for that bird yeah, yeah. I, I i did <clears throat> i had a sadness for the bird and, and knowing how endangered the bird is um you know i felt like i wanted to kidnap it and drive it and release it to like a reedy field <laughs> in ohio you know but when i yeah. got home that day i remember going to the book and and reading, you know, reading up on the sparrow and kind of like taking solace in that sadness. And I almost felt that sadness in the writing that you had about the book. And the one thing that I kind of thought of from that day was, um, do you think that we're seeing the last of this beautiful species? Or do you think there's a chance for a rebound? Or is the lack of habitat the end for a bird like a Henslow? Yeah, it's a really complicated case, and I think that there is both good news and bad news. Um, the good news is that the the species is recognized as having two subspecies, a western subspecies and an eastern subspecies, and the eastern subspecies is probably extinct. Um, there are probably no more representatives of that eastern population, the first population that was discovered by, by ornithology almost 200 years ago. The good news, though, is the, the Western population, which is the population that breeds now from Ohio west to Kansas and Nebraska, that population is doing better than it has for decades. Hmm. And in part, that's because of conservation efforts, um, efforts to, to save the, the tall grass and weeds hmm. that that bird likes. In part, it may just be that this is a cyclical species in areas where it still has the habitat. And so these birds that we see in Pennsylvania and New Jersey annually in, in Pennsylvania, and if I remember right, the bird breeds again in Pennsylvania. And every few years we get one in New Jersey. And I certainly understand the sadness knowing that a bird singing in a, a thistle field in New Jersey probably doesn't have a mate. But at the same time, I think maybe this is the beginning of recolonization. Mm. This is a, a pioneer. And maybe one day some little female Henslow sparrow will hear his song and things will, things will happen. So I, I have hope for that bird. I do have hope for that bird. Certainly when I was a young birder, I never thought I'd see it. Um, I, I grew up in southeast Nebraska, and the bird had not been seen for a couple of decades when I finally saw my first one in Nebraska. 
So things things are looking up in the in the grand scheme. Yeah, Rick, Steve and I are are obviously as you can tell from the name of the, the broadcast, uh died in the wool warbler fans. But oh, yeah. But but sparrows as a songbird is kindred for us, um, as we're in this COVID nineteen lockdown now, and you know paradigms have shifted quite a bit. Uh, we have found a new love and respect for the white throated sparrow mm-hmm. and and their song in particular. Um, I just discovered an empty lot right here near my building. Uh, they torn a couple of houses down a few years ago. It's overgrown now. I was in there the other day just because. I'm trying to find a place I can go and find birds. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, there were white-throated spir- sparrows in there. I recognized their song immediately. Uh, what, but for, for the benefit of our audience that, you know, are probably more dedicated to warblers as well, what are some of the lesser-known sparrows that also have beautiful songs that you can, you can listen for and find in this part of the world? That's one of the great things about sparrows, even the brown ones, even the birds that might be a little bit puzzling visually when you first see them, have some really beautiful songs and, and often very distinctive songs that are that are pretty easy to learn. And you mentioned the white-throated sparrow song. That's always been one of my favorites. It's just so haunting. and Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's just a really romantic song. It makes you feel like you're you're in the boreal forest. Yeah, I, I heard one near my office the other day, and we never have them there. Uh-huh. I, got out, I got out of the car, and I heard it. I knew exactly what it was, and sure enough, there he was. He was right in the bush next to my yeah. office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, here in northern New Jersey, it's um, mid to late april when we start to see lincoln sparrows that's a pretty uncommon sparrow especially in spring mm-hmm. right here on the east coast mm-hmm. but if you get lucky enough to see one this time of year they're often singing and they've got a very beautiful trilled song um very relaxed very very musical that song is and one of my favorites which is is back now and has been back for a couple of weeks is the field sparrow just a a beautiful simple bell-like song so clear and bright um i don't i don't know anybody whose heart is so cold that they can they can not stop and listen when a field (laughs) sparrow sings yeah well you know and also being that steve and i are especially in comparison to some of your stature newer birders Mm -hmm. we've really only kept to the new york new jersey pennsylvania area Mm -hmm. so our particular palette of sparrows is limited to the ones that we get to see in, in that tri-state area. Right. Uh, perhaps with the exception of the Henslow that Steve just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get to see American tree sparrows in the winter. Um, and I believe they, they have a fairly long journey. Uh, are there other sparrows with longer distance migratory patterns we're not aware of? Can you talk about uh, certainly, sparrows have, have the farthest migrations? Um, certainly juncos um, cover a lot of ground. Oh, wow. If you think about it, um, our, our very common slate-colored junco breeds way up north in the, in the boreal forest in Canada, and they're wintering in the east almost all the way to the Gulf Coast. That's, mm. that's quite, a, quite a long journey. Um, it other, is, yeah. yeah. Other sparrows are quite short distance migrants. Um, lark buntings, for example, will move from from Colorado to New Mexico over the over the winter. And a very few sparrows tend to stay in one place all year round. The the song sparrow, for example, which is my wake up uh-huh. bird right now, 
Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there is migration in song sparrows, but certainly you can see a song sparrow here in northern New Jersey any any day of the year. Any day. Oh, I hope they hang around. They save a bed. They save a bad day of photography every time. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> One thing with regard to bird song. I had read a cool article about morning warblers having regional dialects based on breeding area. Is that the same for sparrows? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's really pronounced in some species. The white-crowned sparrow, which winters here in New Jersey in very small numbers and will be coming back through as a migrant um, late this month, is a very widespread bird. We think of it as kind of uncommon and you have to go looking for it here in the east. But in the Midwest and the West, it's it's really quite abundant and every single local population has a different song this is one of the most studied birds in the world in terms of of song variation and a bird that you hear singing in in california will sound different from one in arizona will sound different from one in nebraska will sound different from one in new jersey it's really a very very interesting thing and you compare it with say the white-throated sparrow which has a a quite large range also, um, just about the same size as the white-crowned sparrow. And white-throated sparrow songs don't seem to vary geographically at all. They vary individually. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have have white-throated sparrows in their backyard this time of year, and they're able to identify each individual by his or her um, peculiar song each morning when it sings. And that's one of the great mysteries, you know, why why one bird should be so prone to developing these these dialects and another bird should have such a uniform um, set of vocalizations across its range. The song sparrow, too, has something like 25 or even 30 recognized subspecies, and they they can look very, very different from each other. But to my ear, at least, pretty much a song sparrow sounds like a song sparrow, whether you're in New Jersey or out on the Pribilovs. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So, uh, you know, I obviously have mentioned this to you a few dozen times and that's kind of how I always butter you up. But, uh, the first, <laughs> the first book I ever bought when I, you are started, shameless. Yes, I am completely shameless. You are shameless. Shameless. Uh, but, <laughs> but welcome. Very welcome. He, yeah. He knows though. He knows where I'm going with this. <laughs> The first <laughs> book I ever bought was your field guide uh, to the birds of New Jersey. Uh-huh, yeah. And I still I still actually use it anytime that I go out and I get a bird that I haven't gotten, which at this point I'm kind of getting close to most of the birds of New Jersey at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, the one book that, like I said, I, I will always reference and recommend to new birders in the area is that book. Uh, do you have any other similar guides or have you other books that you've written besides that one well in the same series the american birding association field guide series i wrote the volume um to the birds of arizona okay so i've got i've got two in that season in in that series i'm really happy that 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 book has worked for you um do you have a feeling that you've you've outgrown it oh no i i i think i have for Uh sure but i i I don't really keep much of a list, but when I do get something, I just, for some reason, like I leave it next to my bed and I have all the other ones. I have the Mm siblings and I have all the, you know, 
I have all the books, but for some reason, there's just something to me that that's home, you know? <laughs> and so again, yes, you're right. I probably have outgrown it, but there is something to me that like, I just feel like I'll actually, I'm at the point now where the pages are all marked up. I've numbered them. And so I have everything that anytime I see something new, which like I said, I, I there's not much left for me to see, mm-hmm. but that book really does mean a lot to me. That was definitely my, you know, that was the book when I got into it. And it was even prior to me reconnecting with Kevin, uh-huh. I had known prior, Kevin Bolton, the photographer. Um, I just happened to, when I first had gotten into birding, I was just like, I wanted to see something visual that was very simple and you know concise mm-hmm. that was what i was looking for i didn't want a sibley guide at that point i went mm-hmm. for it but this book your book has been a perfect guide and kind of still i still do uh reference it a lot so i um i you know can't thank you enough on on that one so are there any other books that you've written outside of that and the sparrow book well, those two field guides in the Sparrow book, and um, back in my days as an academic, I wrote I wrote two books about the um, the animal literature of the of the Middle Ages. Those aren't um, aren't really perhaps quite as accessible as as field guides and reference guides should be. Right, right. Now that we've established that your field guide is Steve's Wooby, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it is right. It's comforting. It's familiar, uh, right? That's why you keep going back to it. Um, Last week we had uh, Tom Stevenson uh-huh. on yep. on the show, and you know he's the, obviously the author of the Warbler Guide. And Tom's approach to birding is very much what's audible. He's he's very very big on birding by ear, absolutely. Yep. You know, and, and and I think that has a lot to do with his music background, mm-hmm. and 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 I think it's just an approach that he personally prefers. Um, what about your approach with regard to your birding? Where are you with that? Is it more visual? Is it more by ear? Do you, do you mix the two? How do you, how do you go? I tend it? to mix the two. I don't have very good hearing. Um, I've got a, a, a pretty bad situation with one of my ears where I, I don't hear much. Yeah, me too. Um, but, you know, I, I think that as a birder, you, you tend to develop whatever senses you can to um to detect birds and and often i'll hear something and then see it sometimes i'll see something and notice that it's singing and i didn't hear it which is a little bit galling but it it happens Mm -hmm. but i have to say some of my most exciting birding experiences have have come because of hearing um i i remember just thinking about sparrows i remember um driving over to the the lower colorado in california once and hearing a chip that i didn't quite recognize and it turned out to be a a golden crown sparrow and that chip is very similar to a white crown sparrows chip and i was just so proud of myself i mean i'd seen lots of golden crown sparrows but i had never been led Mm -hmm. to one by recognizing the chip is slightly different and that's one of these little teeny tiny triumphs that really means nothing but means so much as a birder Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Listen, here's where I want to kind of swing the conversation into uh, the situation we're all finding ourselves in now with the COVID-19 lockdown Mm -hmm. for a minute. Um, You know, as I mentioned before, I I discovered this one little spot here where I live um, the other day. And I've been in there a couple of times and I I found woodpeckers, I white-throated sparrows, there's some cardinals, tufted 
is it Titmouse's? Yes, it is. Either one. (laughs) Either one. Okay. Um, And so, you know, while those are not normally birds that I would Mm -hmm. pursue, uh, right now they're what's available. And, um, you know, I don't want to get rusty with the camera. So I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be mm-hmm. chasing those. Being that you live in the same area, Steve and myself, and obviously the the COVID nineteen deal has got you locked down as well as the rest of us. How are you dealing with it and not being able to uh, scratch the itch <laughs> locally and and get and get out where you usually would? Because all the parks are closed, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I know in some parts of the world they're not, but they you are know, it's, here. It's shut down pretty tight right now here. Um, I'm spending a lot of time looking at grackles and. And oh, learning okay. a lot about grackles. In fact, for the yeah, really? yeah, for the Montclair Bird Club newsletter, I, I just wrote something that'll come out sometime soon um, about looking at common grackles in the backyard in New Jersey. It's one of those birds that is so common that I tend to see a grackle fly past or see a grackle on the feeder and think, oh, there's a nice, there's that, that's, that's great. There's a common grackle. But looking at them, you start to learn things. Um, you you notice things about their plumage and behavior that you haven't noticed before. And it's the same thing with the song sparrows and the chipping sparrows and the white-throated sparrows and the goldfinches and, and the starlings and the house sparrows even in our yard. They're really very, very fascinating animals if you just sit down and, and watch them for a while. And I have to confess that at times in my birding career, I have... I have not spent so much time watching things. I haven't spent so much time looking at things like a lot of birders. I've gone through phases where I'm kind of interested in, in rare birds or, or, or listing right. or something like that. And I'm pretty happy right now to be back in the, back in the, the mode of actually watching birds. Hmm. You know, and it's, it's funny because right. I got excited when I had a chipping sparrow at my feeder last week uh-huh. and yeah. <laughs> I've had a regular song sparrow and a white throated sparrow, you know, being that we live in a fairly urban area, are there any surprise sparrows that might make an appearance at our feeders here that we wouldn't necessarily think of? You know, this time of year feeders, just about any sparrow can drop in. Hmm. Um, our yard yeah. is, I think less than a 10th of an acre. And um, we get swamp sparrow and we get field sparrows. We get the occasional Lincoln sparrow. We get savannah sparrows even hmm. um, some years. So oh, wow. really, this is an ideal time to be watching the feeders for, for sparrows. And because a lot of them come in and stay for just a few minutes, you know, they'll come in and they'll take a few grains of millet or, or take a quick furtive bath in the bird bath mm-hmm. and, and be gone being forced to be at home looking out the window at the same feet or the same bird bath hour after hour right. is actually a good thing. We're, we're going to see stuff that we would miss otherwise. Cool. I see. This is why I spent $15 <laughs> on a feeder setup to put in the empty yeah. lot. Yeah. I'm, look, I'm going as cheap as possible because you know somebody's <laughs> going to steal it. So somebody, so I'm going to go over there one day. I'm going to walk through and I think it's going to be gone. But I, I, I at least want to see what I can get in. Well, look, we're getting close to the end here, Rick. Tell us, what is next in the post-COVID world? Well, I very much hope that my tour schedule with, with Victor Emanuel gets going again. Um, obviously, this spring, um, we have, we've had to postpone 
um, all the departures. But I, I hope that that picks yeah. up again this fall. Um, birds and art tours in Europe and, um, and in Central America. I'm also putting together a couple of, of new tours, one new one in southern Spain. I'm hoping to do something in South Africa um, next year or the year after. So I'm spending a lot of time doing some, some research and some writing about that. I'm also writing lots of little tiny things um, right now and starting to give some pretty serious thought to a book about the birds of Guatemala, which is one of my, one of my favorite places in the world Ooh. and has some cool sparrows too. Hmm. So you're, uh, you, you're definitely, you've got your whole plate full with post COVID activities for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to hit the, hit the ground running. That's for sure. And I think we, I think we all are. So, Rick, I just, again, wanted to wrap up and thank you for joining us. Uh, again, your most recent book, The Peterson Reference Guide to Sparrows of North America, available at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Publishing, available at all your finest bookstores and Amazon is out there. Uh, we're so thankful that you got to spend some time with us today, and we'd love to have you back on again uh, next season to talk more about uh, Guatemala and some of your other uh, endeavors. So let's please have you back on down the road. And thank you for really thank hey, you, I Rick. It was great talking to you again. And you know what I look forward to even more is getting to see you out in the field again when we that's possible. Cannot wait to see you at that location in Sea Caucus. <laughs> okay, sounds real good. Hey, we've been Warbler Crazy. Thanks. If you guys haven't followed us yet, please do. Hashtag Warbler Crazy. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Please let your friends know. Please share it. Uh, every week, every time anybody shares it, it helps us gain followers and gets our word out to everybody else. Thanks for joining us. I'm Stephen Michaels. Absolutely. And my buddy here, Enrico Palazzo. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.